0: in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with HowStuffWorks, and I love all things tech. And we're going to continue our discussion about how Apple survived the PC wars. So if you haven't heard part one, that was last week's or la- the last episode, rather. You should go and listen to that. The episode before that was all about uh, obscure or semi-obscure computers that time has forgotten. So computers that came out in the 70s and 80s that did not stand the test of time. Uh, so these are all sort of part of kind of a series about computers and why the computer landscape is the way it is today. Why don't we have a Commodore... 64 or really, you know, a, would be like a Commodore like 2048 or something at this point. Uh, why don't we have that? Uh, instead, we've got these various Windows based machines and Macintosh machines or Mac machines. Why is that? So we're looking at the Apple side of that story and continuing that story today. Uh, in the last episode, I talked about the early history of Apple computers and how the company hit a home run with the Apple II platform, but then found itself on shaky ground When Apple launched the Macintosh in 1984, the company was still depending upon revenue generated by Apple II sales, mostly in the form of the Apple IIe computer. The platform had the benefit of a large library of programs. A lot of developers had made software for the Apple II, and the computers were dependent upon processors that had been manufactured in the late 1970s, which raised some eyebrows because now you had... This increasingly old platform had a good library of software, but could it remain relevant? At the time, the software rarely required more resources than the Apple II could provide, so they hadn't quite hit a a true stopping point yet. There there were some concessions being made by software developers to make sure that their programs could run on Apple II properly, but it was good enough. It didn't push the 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 uh, capabilities of the Apple II platform so hard that it was unable to meet the requirements of the software. It didn't hurt that Apple II had a text-based operating system rather than the graphic user interface that the Macintosh introduced to the home computer market, because if you remember from our last episode, one of the big challenges the Macintosh faced was that the GUI, this graphic user interface, took up most of the computer's memory, which left very little for it to do other applications. The Apple II didn't have that problem. It was all text-based, so it, it could reserve its memory for all the programs. Meanwhile, the Macintosh continued to struggle in those early days due to an expensive price tag and a limited number of applications available for the platform. When the Macintosh came out in 1984, it was not alone. Apple launched another computer a couple of months later. Uh, Well, it also launched the Lisa 2, which was an attempt to salvage the Lisa project. It would ultimately rebrand the Lisa 2 as the Macintosh XL, but that's not the computer I was referring to. Instead, I'm talking about the Apple IIc. So even as Apple was trying to forge a new path with the Macintosh line of computers, it was still leaning heavily on the Apple II platform. So what set the Apple IIc apart from the Apple IIe, which had launched in 1983? Well, for one thing, it was a lot smaller. The C in Apple IIc stood for compact. It was, at least by some definitions, portable the basic computer had a handle that could fold down to become a stand that would tilt the computer keyboard into the proper position for typing it did not however have an integrated display so you would have to carry a separate display around with you and connect it to your portable computer also it didn't have a battery power supply you would have to plug the computer in somewhere now eventually you could get battery packs that the computer could use as a power source but it didn't ship with them Still, the industrial redesign of the Apple form factor and its versatile size uh, and its features meant it got support in the market, even though it was built on an aging foundation of the Apple II platform. It actually received the highest number of day one orders in Apple's history, and it initially cost $1,300. After a year on the market, it sold more than 400,000 units. So it proved that the Apple II platform still had legs seven years after it had been introduced. In April 1984, Apple officially retired the Apple III platform. Between the Apple III and the Apple III Plus, which was a slightly upgraded version, the company had managed to sell only 65,000 computers. It had manufactured 90,000. The Apple III was just about, by any measurement, a total failure. In May 1984, Apple announced it had shipped 70,000 Macintosh computers within the first 100 days of it being available. Though, I should point out that shipped and sold are two different metrics— Still, this was not a bad number, but it was still shy of projections Apple had made when the Macintosh was still in development. They had said that they needed to sell 47,000 units per month. Instead, they had moved 70,000 units in 100 days, so they were still falling short. In September, Apple introduced the 512-kilobyte version of the Macintosh. This version was more expensive than the base model. It cost $3,200 when it launched. The following month, Apple announced they had sold the 2 millionth Apple II computer. That means in just a little more than a year, the company went from producing its 1 millionth Apple II machine to selling its 2 millionth unit. Now, this was spread across the family of Apple II computers at that time, so the Apple II, the Apple IIe, and the Apple IIc. The Apple II line continued to keep the company afloat. By the end of 1984, Apple had sold a quarter of a million Macintosh systems. It was a modest success, but far short of those 2.2 million units the company had hoped for back in 1981. Still, the Macintosh was a nice change of pace, it was not a commercial flop like the Lisa or the technical flop like the Apple 3. In 1985, while struggles at the management level would ultimately prompt Steve Jobs and Apple to part ways, the company was still struggling with what to do with the Lisa 2. At first, the company rebranded the Lisa 2 and called it the Macintosh XL, but the rebranding wasn't enough to save the project, and ultimately, Apple would abandon it in April 1985, just a few months after rebranding it. Also that year, Apple made some major cuts. The number of employees had topped 5,700 at Apple, but in June 1985, the company eliminated about 20% of all of its positions. In 1986, Apple was a very different company. Both of the co-founders were gone. The Apple III and the Lisa projects were both a thing of the past. The Macintosh line was continuing, as did the now-ancient, by computer standards, Apple II line. On the 10th anniversary of Apple's founding... April 1st, 1986, the company announced the Apple 2GS. This was the last major update to the Apple II platform. Apple would later introduce upgrades to the Apple IIe and the IIc lines, but the IIGS represented the last big development on that platform. It was the end of the life cycle for the Apple II platform, or at least the beginning of the end. The GS in 2GS, by the way, stood for graphics and sound. This is one of those things that confused me back when I was a kid because we had an Apple 2E, the Apple IIc c came out after the Apple IIe, but in the alphabet, C comes before E, and I didn't know that the letters actually stood for stuff. And then the Apple II GS came out, and I really was wondering what was going on. That's because these letters actually were standing for different terms. In this case, like I said, GS stood for graphics and sound. The Apple II GS had a graphic user interface that was similar to the Macintosh GUI. It also had a mouse. It did not have an integrated floppy drive in the computer case, but rather it would uh, have an external floppy disk drive, so you would have to connect it via cable to the CPU. These were three and a half inch disks at this time, not the old five and a quarter inch disks. Some people mistakenly at the time would call these disks hard disks because three and a half inch disks were in hard plastic as opposed to that thinner, more flexible stuff that the five and a quarter inch disks used, but they were still technically floppy disks, not hard disks. That's a tangent. The 2GS had a different processor than its Apple II computer. Uh, predecessors, it used the Western Digital 16-bit 65C816 microprocessor. However, that microprocessor was compatible with the older 6502 processors that other Apple II computers used, so the 2GS retained backwards compatibility with existing Apple II software. The clock speed on the new processor could reach 2.8 megahertz, though if you were running old Apple II software, you would have to limit the clock speed to 1 megahertz in order to make it compatible with that old programming. If you bought third-party hardware, you could actually overclock it to a then-blistering 18 megahertz. The company also boasted 256 kilobytes of RAM, which could be expanded up to 8 megabytes. The company had a display, that, or the computer rather, had a display that could support a resolution of 640 by 200 pixels in 4-color mode, or 320 by 200 pixels in 16-color mode. So still, while it was high-definition at the time... It's pretty low resolution these days. The 2GS also introduced a new hardware element that found its way into the Macintosh line after a little bit. This was called the Apple Desktop Bus. Now, a bus is a communication system within a computer or between computers. Its job is to transfer data between components or between computers, For example, a computer's CPU and its memory are tightly coupled, and a bus provides the communication link between those two components— The Apple desktop bus was a peripheral, an external peripheral, that allowed users to connect different devices to a proprietary standard for Apple systems. You could use it to connect stuff like a keyboard or a mouse to a computer. This was Apple's proprietary approach to a universal connector, universal within the world of Apple, but not outside of it. Now, eventually, the company would discontinue this bus system in favor of following the industry standard of USB later on. Much later on, as Macintosh computers, we continued to use ADB until the late 1990s. The ADB was one of many projects Steve Wozniak had worked on before he left the company in 1985. Also in 1986, Apple swapped out the 512-kilobyte Macintosh for a new enhanced version that cost less. The new machine sold for uh, $2,000, and the Macintosh Plus also debuted in 1986. It had a whopping whole megabyte of RAM and 128 kilobytes of read-only memory, or ROM, This machine was capable of running more demanding applications and put it beyond the limits of what the failed Lisa and Lisa 2 platforms were supposed to do. So finally, Apple had moved beyond those, and it cost $2,600, which was expensive but not nearly at the levels of the earlier Macintosh and Lisa computers. By this time, Apple was really swinging focus to the Macintosh line. The Apple II products were finally running out of steam. There were only so many updates Apple could make to the legacy platform to keep them relevant in the face of competing machines. Those machines were largely IBM-compatible PCs at this point. Now, I'll talk more about them in the next episode. But the Macintosh line looked like it was truly going to be the future of the company. Now that did not mean that Apple would abandon the Apple II platform right away. Sales were still okay, so they were still bringing in money for the, for the company, and the Macintosh sales figures had not quite reached a level that was sustainable in the long term. The former president of Apple France, a man named Jean-Louis Gasset, came over to Apple's US operations to take the role that Steve Jobs had held for years. Gasset made decisions that were very different from his predecessor. He wanted Apple to stop concentrating on making machines for home users and focus on the more profitable business and high-end consumer market. He wanted Apple to focus more on technical superiority than aesthetic design. He had a mantra that many at Apple began to repeat, and that mantra was, 55 or die. That was a reference to Gasset's goal of hitting a 55% profit margin on Apple computers, meaning that you're selling the computers at 55% more than what it cost you to make them and market them. It was at this time that Apple really cemented its reputation as offering computers that were more expensive than the comparable IBM clones on the market. At first, Macintosh computers also suffered from a lack of software, and to be fair, the Macintosh platform consistently lagged behind IBM-compatible computers in terms of a software library. That said, the emphasis on power and technical specs meant that developers could create sophisticated software for the Macintosh that IBM-compatible machines could not easily replicate. This was a trend that would last for years with certain types of processor heavy applications like video, photo, and audio editing software becoming the bread and butter for the Macintosh line. That remains true to this day. If you look at the production machines here at How Stuff Works, you'll notice an awful lot of Macintosh computers because the people who are using it to uh, edit audio and video work need that power. And Macintosh is still known for that to this day. I've got a lot more to say about Apple and how it survived the PC wars of the early 80s all the way through the 90s. But first, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. In 1987, Apple sold its one millionth Macintosh computer. That was good, but again, their original goal was to hit that 2.2 million unit sales from 1982 to 1985, so 87 hitting 1 million. They're a little behind schedule. The Macintosh had debuted in 1984. It took three years to hit that 1 million units sold. Still, the Macintosh... Apple was offering was a very different machine than the one the design team had had in mind way back in the early 1980s. Remember, they had wanted to create a user-friendly home computer that could be sold for around $1,000. The actual machines had so many more features than the design team had originally intended that it cost more than twice as much as the goal price the team had anticipated when they were first talking about it. That spring... Apple introduced the Macintosh 2. This was the first of the computers of the Gasset era. It cost a whopping $6,500 when it was released, though you could actually find it for a little less at about $5,500 at some places. The computer boasted a 32-bit microprocessor for Motorola running at 16 MHz clock speed. It also had one megabyte of RAM, expandable up to 68 megabytes, and 256 kilobytes of ROM. It was also the first Mac to support a color display. This was Apple's first big step to creating a 3M machine. Now this was a term used in the early 80s to describe a computer that had at least one megabyte of memory, a million pixel display, and a megaflop of processing power. There was actually another project that was supposed to get Apple to that fabled 3M land. It was called the Big Mac. Steve Jobs had overseen the project back before he left Apple. The computer was supposed to run Unix as its operating system instead of the system Mac operating system. After Jobs left and Gasset took over his role, uh, Gasset canceled the Big Mac project. Much of that work was then transitioned over to the Macintosh 2 design. The Macintosh 2 had a megabyte of memory and, when paired with the right display, could support a million pixels. But it fell short on the floating operations per second metric, topping out at 160 kiloflops. The leads on the Macintosh 2 design were Michael Dewey and Brian Berkeley and Hartmut Esslinger. Now, back when they first started on the design work, Steve Jobs was still around, They kept their work secret because they were expressly violating Steve Jobs' wishes with the Macintosh 2's features. Specifically, Steve Jobs was not in favor of color displays in Macintosh computers because, at that time, printers were monochromatic. So, if you could view colors on screen, but you could only print in black and white... The printouts would not represent what you were working on. That would be a disconnect. This was a violation of the what you see is what you get, or WYSIWYG design philosophy. Jobs was also against the idea of expansion slots, which the Macintosh 2 had. Jobs felt that expansion slots were great for hobbyists, but that they made the experience complicated for the average user. The Secret Project had a code name, Little Big Mac. It was developed in parallel with the Big Mac project that Jobs was overseeing before his departure. The Macintosh 2 ended up being sort of a combination of these two projects. Actually, it had several code names, many of which were city names during its whole design process. The case design of the Macintosh 2 made it look a lot more like your standard IBM-compatible machine. It had a case that you would place on your desk, horizontally. You'd set your monitor on top of this horizontal case. The keyboard was separate and would sit in front of the case. The Macintosh 2 was one of the first Macintosh machines to feature the Apple desktop bus introduced by the Apple 2GS. And from that point forward, Macintosh computers would typically ship standard with the Apple desktop bus. Oh, and the Macintosh 2 was also the first of the Macintosh computers to feature what is commonly referred to as The Chimes of Death. Well, the Macintosh SE, which came out the same month as the Macintosh 2, also had the Chimes of Death. This was the sound notification the Macintosh would make when there was a a critical failure in the system. The SE was more of a traditional Macintosh computer souped up a bit for the business world. It cost $3,700 upon release, making it a less expensive solution than the Macintosh 2. The same year, Apple spun off its software division as a new company called Claris. The company was able to focus on developing software for the Macintosh platforms and had licenses to several legacy Mac programs like MacWrite and MacPaint. It would operate as a separate entity until 1998 when Apple would reacquire the company. Also in 1987, Microsoft released the second version of Windows. The first version of Windows, which came out in 1985, hadn't received much attention. Most people dismissed it as being clunky and not terribly useful. But Windows 2.0 was doing a little better. That prompted Apple to sue Microsoft and Hewitt-Packard with a claim that the Windows GUI, the GUI, infringed upon the intellectual property of Apple. Apple. The claim stated that the Windows platform too closely resembled the Macintosh user interface. The courts ultimately decided against Apple on this front. When Windows 3.0 debuted in 1990, it marked the beginning of a big transition in IBM-compatible personal computers as they began to migrate from DOS to Windows. And it reduced one of the qualities that differentiated Macintosh computers from IBM compatibles. Believe it or not... Even at this stage, 10 years after the debut of the Apple II, the company was still selling Apple II machines. Many of those products, even the updated enhanced versions, would finally say goodbye in the early 1990s. Apple made an Apple IIe card that could be used with Macintosh computers to make them backwards compatible with certain Apple II software packages, but even that would take a bow by 1995. The Apple II platform still helped provide revenue to Apple, but it was clear that the Macintosh was going to have to step up. What followed were a series of Macintosh computers that followed the design philosophy of Gasset and the Macintosh II. These were expensive desktop publishing machines that were technically sound, but at a premium price. The Macintosh started to gain a reputation for being a bit elitist. It was undeniably useful for many processor heavy applications, but it was so expensive and the suite of software was so much more narrow than the library available for the IBM compatible computers that a lot of average consumers dismissed the platform out of hand. And a smaller user base meant that software developers had less incentive to create programs for the Macintosh. The logic goes like this. You're a programmer and you want to create a really cool application. Let's say it's a game. You want that game to reach as many people as possible, both because you want people to experience your work and, of course, you wish to profit from that work. You want to make some money. It makes sense to focus your efforts on the largest possible audience. Now, if you don't have time to develop and program a game for both Macintosh and PC platforms, you have to choose one or the other. With way more people owning IBM-compatible machines at this point, it just makes sense to develop for the PC and Windows platforms. That's where you're going to reach the largest number of people, assuming your game resonates with your intended audience. Now, that didn't mean there weren't developers, even game developers, who concentrated solely on the Macintosh. There were. There just weren't as many Macintosh developers as there were Windows or PC developers. By the late 1980s, the Macintosh stood as the only real challenger to the IBM-compatible PC. Other companies had withdrawn from the home PC market, acknowledging that it was too competitive to make a go at it. Tandy and Texas Instruments were out. Atari was in rapid decline and soon would exist only in name. Commodore had retired the Commodore 64 but was still hanging in the race with its Amiga line of computers. But by the mid-1990s, Commodore couldn't hold together and declared bankruptcy. The game was essentially down to all the companies that were making IBM-compatible machines or Windows-based machines or DOS-based machines and Apple. And Apple had a tiny, tiny sliver of that market share. Apple had carved out a market, but it was a small one. It was no longer a dominant player in the home computer world. But it was the only real alternative to the Windows machines, those DOS machines, the IBM PC clones that were running uh, either DOS or, increasingly at this point, Windows. In 1989, Apple would release the Macintosh Portable. Now, this was the first truly portable Macintosh computer with an incorporated screen that could fold down to make the computer into a kind of clunky wedge shape. It had a trackball in place of a mouse. It had serial and SCSI ports for peripherals. It had a floppy drive and a 40 megabyte hard drive. It had a megabyte of RAM and used the Motorola 68000 processor running at a 16 megahertz clock speed. The portable machine cost a hefty $7,300. It ran on Mac OS 6.04 when it launched. As for its power supply, that came in the form of a rechargeable battery, only it wasn't a lithium-ion battery, it was a lead-acid battery, you know, kind of like the kind that you would find in a car. That added a couple of pounds to this portable computer, so the whole thing weighed about 16 pounds, or 7.3 kilograms. In other words, it was a hefty portable computer. You probably wouldn't want to lug it around everywhere you go. A couple of years later, Apple would give the portable computer another shot. You know, would, they'd would say, let's try and get this form factor down, and they released the PowerBook 100. Only, this computer wasn't actually designed by Apple. The PowerBook 100 was based off the original Macintosh portable schematics, but it was designed by Sony. Legasp. Sony helped miniaturize the components that made the Macintosh portable so gosh darn anti-portable, the PowerBook 100 launched in 1991, and while it wasn't a solely Apple-designed product, it did help put Apple back on the right path. In 1992, the magazine Macworld published an article written by Jerry Borrell that had some troubling implications. Now, Borel cited an earlier interview from 1991 in which Apple executive Mike Spindler, the CEO who, uh, well, at the time he was still... Uh, under the CEO, but he would become the CEO of the company, said that they were investigating the possibility of licensing the Macintosh operating system to other hardware manufacturers. Now, this was very much the opposite of what Steve Jobs felt was the right path for Apple when he was still there. From its earliest incarnation, Apple had done its best to protect its hardware and software. It had sued companies that put out clones of the Apple II platform, But as Apple and the market changed, so too did this philosophy. By the early 1990s, it sounded like Apple was interested in making some cash by licensing the Mac OS to other types of hardware. While the interest was there, Apple didn't make a move to do this until 1995. John Scully had left in 1993, replaced by Michael the Diesel Spindler, and I'm not making up that nickname. So the same person who gave that interview in 91 was now running the company. In 1994, Apple made a big switch. The company had depended upon Motorola produced microprocessors since 1983 when the failed Lisa computer had a Motorola 68000 chip in it. But delays in manufacturing a Motorola, uh, at Motorola rather, meant that some of the higher-end computers in the early 90s that used the Motorola 68040 processors were launching behind schedule. So Apple executives decided they would switch to a different CPU. And there were a couple of different options available. Now, the most popular and arguably the most powerful choice would have been Intel. The company led the pack in microprocessor technologies. But rather than switch to Intel, Apple executives decided to go with PowerPC. Starting in 1994 with the Power Macintosh and Performa 6 series, the company began using PowerPC chips as CPUs. John Scully would later admit that it probably would have been a better idea to go with Intel from the start. After 2005, that's exactly what Apple did. They switched from PowerPC to Intel processors. But during this PowerPC era, there were many different lines of Macintosh computers on the market, all of them on the high-end spectrum for computers. Macintosh accounted for about 7% of the overall market share for desktop computers. There were some unauthorized Macintosh clones being sold in various places, and Apple executives decided... It was better to make some money off of official licensed Mac clones than to see these unlicensed ones pop up with no benefit to Apple. The company began to offer up a license to the Macintosh ROMs and operating system to other manufacturers. This gave Apple a quick jolt of cash, but before long, Apple began to regret this decision because... Other companies were able to make Macintosh-compatible computers using PowerPC-based machines for less than the official Macintosh computers on the market. So Apple was undercutting its own sales, in other words, because it was allowing these other companies to make Macintosh-compatible machines. Michael Spindler would step down as CEO in 1996. During his time at the helm, he was rumored to have held discussions with big companies about possibly selling Apple to a competitor, like IBM or Sun Microsystems. That obviously didn't happen. His replacement was Gil Emilio, who was only CEO from 96 to 97. Emilio wanted to address some of the big problems left in the wake of Scully and Spindler, namely some pretty public failures like the Apple Newton and the less public but perhaps more impactful failure of uh, an operating system upgrade called Copeland. And in a moment, I will talk more about this would-be successor to the Mac OS known as System 7. But first, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. Okay, so by the mid-90s, it was clear that the Macintosh line was going to need a new operating system. System 7, which was introduced in 1991, was a good OS and had a lot of useful features and support, but it was showing its age. The original intent was to do a huge overhaul to the operating system and come up with something that was more future-proofed. This project was called Copeland. It was supposed to have several next-generation features that would push Macintosh into a new era of sophistication. It was born out of a practice Apple was following that has the informal name of Blue or Pink. During brainstorming sessions, developers would propose upgrades to existing operating systems, features that they thought it should have. So ideas that were considered to be relatively easy to implement would go on blue cards. Ideas that were a little more difficult and perhaps a bit further off would go on pink cards. Ideas that were really tricky but considered to be worth doing would go down on red cards. Then developers would essentially divide up into a couple of teams. The blue team would go to work on the near-term upgrades to whatever operating system they were working on. The pink team would concentrate on something a bit more revolutionary. Copeland started out as a pink team project. However, as time went on, managers began to pull ideas from the red cards and put them in with the pink team's plans. So this is another case of feature creep, something Apple had struggled with many times in its past. As new features were added to the specs of the operating system, the development time grew longer and the project fell further behind schedule. After Gil Emilio replaced Michael Spindler as CEO, he brought on Ellen Hancock from National Semiconductor to come in and review the operating system in development to see if it was actually close to where it needed to be. Hancock did a full review and she concluded that the Operating system was in a total shambles. She said that while parts of the development process were fairly well along, Others were lagging way behind, and there was little hope that all these various pieces would be able to come together into a cohesive operating system. Emilio was then left in a really bad position. The company had put a ton of effort into developing this new operating system, and it just wasn't where it needed to be. He made the call to purchase a new operating system rather than continue down the path of trying to develop Copeland. His decision led him to purchase a fledgling computer company called Next. Now, this was a company that had been founded by a very special person. That person was Steve Jobs. Emilio announced that Apple would acquire Next and that Jobs himself would come over to Apple in an advisory position. Emilio made this move in an effort to right the corporate ship. Jobs would end up contacting the board of directors and he argued that Emilio should be removed as CEO, that Apple was on the verge of collapse, and that a series of bad decisions made by the last three CEOs had put the company in a terrible position. The board agreed with Jobs. They removed Emilio, and then Jobs took over as interim CEO. He would become the official CEO of Apple by 2000. Jobs made some really big changes soon after his arrival, which included canceling a lot of projects that were in development. And also firing people. It was around this time that the term getting jobs emerged, meaning you didn't want to find yourself alone in a room with Steve Jobs for fear of getting fired on the spot. Jobs called for an end of the licensing program for Macintosh Technologies. He wanted to see no more Mac clones on the market. And he wanted everything to fall fully under the control of the company again. No version of Macintosh should ever come from anyone other than Apple. And while Apple developers continued to go down the legacy operating system route for a couple of versions, Jobs helped foster in the Mac OS X build, sometimes called Mac OS X because it's Roman numeral 10. This introduced many of the features that were originally promised in Copeland. So it wasn't exactly the same as the one that was in development, but it had a lot of the elements that were in development from a few years back. Jobs even presented at a Macworld conference and he included a live streamed message from the rival, you know, the, the anti Apple, the, the big adversary Bill Gates. Keeping in mind that Apple and Microsoft had had a very long relationship with each other, sometimes adversarial. But Bill Gates live streamed a presentation at Macworld and he announced that he was making a $150 million investment in Apple on behalf of Microsoft which got a rousing round of boos from the crowd, who were all very much very uh, passionate Apple supporters, and thus a little biased against Microsoft. In 1998, Apple introduced an all-in-one computer called the iMac. The iMac represented a return to Apple's focus on home users. It was aesthetically pleasing, it was available in various colors after its initial launch, and it seemed to go back to what set Apple apart in the first place, this idea of a friendly-looking machine that's meant for the average person, not something that is cold and calculating or intimidating. The iMac also adopted universal standards like USB and got rid of those proprietary connectors Apple had been using for more than a decade. So that bus that Apple had developed, which was useful for the Macintosh, was abandoned for the more standardized universal serial bus, the USB. In 1999, Apple retired the Macintosh name when it discontinued the power Macintosh. That was the last machine to actually be called a Macintosh. From that point forward, the computers in this line were just referred to as Macs, not Macintoshes. A couple years later, Macs began to include hardware that had been standard in PCs for a while, like CD-rewritable drives. So those are optical drives that would allow you to write data to CDs. Uh, Until about 2000, 2001, you couldn't find that in Macs. And then Apple also began including DVD drives on machines. The Mac was now getting positioned not just as a computer, but as a media device. This also helped boost sales and launches of other products like the iPod and iTunes helped even more because Apple products worked really, really well together. And now you could get Apple devices to communicate with stuff made from other manufacturers, but the experience was never as seamless or easy. A good example of this is iPods and iTunes. I had an iPod, I did not have a Mac, and I found it really frustrating to update my iPod to transfer music over. The iTunes build for Windows just didn't work as well as what I kept hearing about because, again, I didn't have a Mac. I finally got a Mac And then the experience was incredible and I realized, oh, this is a very nice design approach where you make sure that all of your stuff works seamlessly and maybe you make sure it doesn't work quite as well if you're using other people's stuff. I can't say for certain that the decisions were conscious to make that happen or that it all was purposeful, but it was certainly convenient and in favor of Apple because it meant that you were much more Likely to go with a full Apple ecosystem because everything just worked with each other, as opposed to mixing and matching where things may not work so smoothly. Oh, and uh, Jobs also oversaw the transition from power PC machines to Intel powered Mac computers, and to this day, Mac uses Intel chips. So that's kind of how Apple survived the PC wars. For a really long time, the company was just largely dependent upon a proven but aging technology in the form of the Apple II platform. It's it's hard to stress how important the Apple II was to Apple the company. Without the Apple II platform and its long, long life cycle and the fact that it was relevant or managed to remain relevant for so long, without that, Apple would not have lasted because it was really putting its neck out with some high-risk projects like Lisa and the Apple III that ultimately failed. Without that Apple II safety net, The company probably would not have existed. It wouldn't have, it wouldn't have lasted. And all we would have at this point would be IBM compatible Windows based machines. After the Apple II platform, it was all about leaning heavily on high end, high profit margin computers in the Macintosh era, which ended up being unsustainable in the long run and nearly led to the company's collapse. Only when Steve Jobs came back and laid down the law did the company seem to get its footing again. Would Apple have survived without Steve Jobs returning to the company? Well, it's hard to say because obviously we can only see what has happened, not what would have happened. But Jobs certainly had a major impact on the performance of Apple, even if it was just through what people called his reality distortion field. Today, Apple is an insanely successful and valuable company. It's constantly right there on the verge of becoming a trillion dollar company. But there were times in its history when it could have joined the ranks of Commodore, or Tandy, or Atari. It's kind of amazing it survived long enough to become the powerhouse that it is now, and also amazing that much of its success is due to stuff that isn't a computer at all, like the iPod, or the iPhone, or the iTunes suite. That's pretty phenomenal. In our next episode, I'll explore how IBM got into the personal computer market, and why the company made the decision to get out of it. We'll also learn how tons of companies were able to create machines that emulated IBM's design and define the PC market as it stands today. If you guys have suggestions for future topics of tech stuff, maybe there's something you would like an update on, something I've covered in the past but has changed since the last time I covered it. Maybe there's a brand new technology or a company or a person in tech that you think I should cover. Or maybe there's someone you would like me to interview or have on as a guest host you need to let me know. Send me an email. The address is at com, Or you can drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle at both of those is techstuffhsw. Make sure you follow us on Instagram. Check out all the behind-the-scenes stuff going on over there. And remember, you can watch me record podcasts live every Wednesday and Friday, or I shouldn't say every, nearly every Wednesday and Friday. Uh, Just go to twitch.tv slash tech stuff. You can jump into the chat room and chat with other fans, chat with me as well. And I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.